Please be seated. For just a moment of privilege, Doug and Ann Smith were married in this sanctuary just a week ago from yesterday. Congratulations. <laughs> Woohoo! Our scripture lesson this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, not, does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O oh Lord, our rock, our strength, our redeemer. Amen. Once long ago in China, there lived a poor man. One day he was so hungry, he stole a pear in the marketplace. The vendor, of course, had him arrested, and when taken before the emperor for punishment, he said, if you will pardon me, I'll give you a precious gift. The emperor, eyeing the man, said, what could you possibly have that I would consider precious? The thief then pulls out of his pocket a small brown pear seed and says, if you plant this pear seed, it will sprout tomorrow and will bear a fruit of gold. Sounds like a winning proposition, so they took him out to the garden and said, plant it. And tomorrow when it sprouts, we'll pardon you. 
The guy says, no can do. Tomorrow, you see, I cannot plant it, for surely the magic seed can only be planted by the person who has never stolen, never cheated, never hurt anyone, or spoken an untruth. My emperor, please plant the seed. The emperor hemmed and hawed just a bit and said, I don't plant crops. Give the seed to the prime minister. The prime minister refused, saying, I am very bad at growing crops. I don't want to try to mess up the magic seed. Give it to the royal treasurer. Of course, the treasurer then made his excuses, and one by one by one, all of the officials in the court declined to plant the seed. Finally, the thief spoke. Not one of you can plant the seed because not one of you is without lie, theft, or misdeed. Yet I am being punished for stealing a piece of fruit when I was hungry? Is that justice? Justice demands my release. And so it was. Just when you think you've got justice figured out, it gets all squirrely on you. If this scripture this morning does not mess with us, then we aren't listening. The righteousness Jesus is talking about must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Frankly, because the way they've been doing it up till now had not been working. Remember that on the first Sunday of Epiphany, we discovered that the real presence of God had just become human flesh in Jesus. On the second one, John the Baptist walks in big and large saying, Heads up, folks, Jesus is God. And he's on a divine mission to change our world. On the third Sunday, Jesus lays out the mission statement, saying it's time to repent because the kingdom of heaven is really near. Last Sunday, Pastor Jennifer opened the Sermon on the Mount where the disciples learned that they are a blessing. They're the window through which the infinite love of God is going to be seen. Now, here on the fifth Sunday of Epiphany, they learn what that mirror does. The purpose is to be the activity of God in the world, both salt and light to the world, because Jesus intends for their ministry to have profound consequences. And just as you would expect, that very declaration stirs up a hornet's nest. Jesus has just declared that practicing faith 
as it's been done, righteousness as it's been practiced, will simply no longer do. And the local church leadership accuses him of meddling with the very law that grounds everything they are and everything they've known. Jesus seems to be interpreting the law very differently, making righteousness far too broad and liberating. You see, under the oppressive Roman government, the Jewish people had hunkered down, practicing their faith by keeping to the letter of law, meaning they didn't want to break any, but also not living the spirit of the law, translated, not letting too much light shine because it was just too dangerous in a Roman-ruled world. For a very long time, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees had had to become concerned mostly about the observance of tradition, public display of piety, and adherence to the letter of the law. The letter of the law way meant for them predictability and stability. You could manage it, making it clear and unambiguous and unfortunately, small, unable to bring light or restoration as God would want and Jesus would plan. Knowing that he was upsetting the apple cart, Jesus proclaims that he's not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill every letter of it. He would mirror God righteousness practicing that valued the despised, caring for those who suffer great loss, healing the sick of heart or mind, seeking to do justice for those who have none, showing mercy and integrity, creating peacemakers, and courageously standing against those powers that have dehumanized people. The usual simply will no longer do. And that's when the disciples get their marching orders. Stating in bold, no uncertain terms, Jesus declares that the disciples are going to be in the business of salt and light. They're going to be so big at it that they're a city on a hill, making conspicuous the distinctiveness of God's love, just as wide and far as light can reach. They were to be mirrors of God within the community of faith. Now, have you ever wondered why it is that we seem so, it seems so hard to see ourselves, to see life, law, living, the way Jesus does. In some ways, I think it's because from the very beginning of time, humanity has always wanted to make it about us, about me. Just think about it. Wasn't it Adam and Eve in the very beginning when Adam says, innocent, she's got the snake, 
gave me the apple, not me, not me. Jacob, greedy guy that he was, thought he deserved his brother's birthright and took it. The prodigal son, give me what's mine. Hey, Jesus, who gets to sit on the right side of you in heaven? Maybe me? Even the way we look at our salvation is all about what Jesus did for me. Don't we say Jesus died for my sins? Have you ever wondered where we got that? Well, I'm absolutely glad you asked. <laughs> I can think of at least two really good reasons. The first is you and I are impossibly human. Give it up for DNA. That isn't going to change. And the second is that this is what we were taught. Did you know that in the first millennium, folks believed that Jesus' death was to pay a debt to the devil? It wasn't until the 11th century when Anselm of Canterbury, Abelard, and Aquinas tried to explain differently why Jesus had to die. It was Anselm who suggested that Jesus had to die to pay a debt to God, to be the substitute payment for all of our sins. Therein arose the substitutionary doctrine of atonement. Jesus took our place in paying for our sins. Has that ever bothered you? Why is it that we see God as angry at us and deciding to take it out on a son who, by the way, never did nothing wrong? Noodle this. It is in the 13th century that a Franciscan philosopher and theologian by the name of John Dunn Scotus, not the Supreme Court of the United States Scotus, the theologian Scotus, who just couldn't wrap his head around that terrible idea that God, a loving God, would demand Jesus be a blood sacrifice to atone for our sin-drenched souls. Could God need payment? Jesus' violent death to be able to love and to accept God's own children? He just couldn't imagine God being angry enough at us to demand his son's death for payment. Understandably, it was the practice of Judaism during the day which widely understood that language of death and atonement and blood sacrifice making things right within the community again. These were the, the framework in which the gospel writers and Paul understood the reason for Christ's life. 
But what Duns Scotus said essentially was that Jesus, hear this, did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. Hear that again. Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. It did not need changing. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. And that that would cost him his life makes absolute sense. What we have called atonement or dead paying is more accurately than Jesus' way of at-one-ment. Bring us back into the wholeness of God, into the love of God, and into the image of God's children. But all of me must go away, for God's love is for us, for community. No wonder then that Jesus expresses an urgency that the disciples become that city on a hill, light and salty. The usual just isn't getting them there. This past week I pulled up the Passion Translation. If you haven't seen it, it's delicious. 1 Corinthians 13 reads this way. And it makes the difference in language of salt and light. If I were to speak with eloquence in earth's many languages and in heavenly tongues of angels, yet I didn't express myself with love, my words would be reduced to the hollow sound of nothing more than clanging cymbal, salt under a foot and light under a bushel. And if I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets and I possessed unending supernatural power, if I had the gift of faith that could move mountains but never learn to love, then I am nothing. And if I were to be so generous as to give away everything I owned to feed the poor and to offer my body as burned of the martyr without the pure motive of love, I would gain nothing of value. Because love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate one's own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect, nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat. It never gives up. Because love 
never stops loving. Isn't it clear that the usual just won't do? Richard Rohr suggests, and I quote, the single biggest heresy that allows us to misinterpret scriptural tradition is individualism. Revealed now in the problems we're facing with climate change, pollution, the loss of biodiversity, and the extinction of many species. We've become so anthropocentric and self-referential that we thought God cared not about every living creature, nor about the new heaven and the earth, but just about us people, and not even very many of us at that. That's what happens when we go down the track of individualism and lose sight of God's righteousness for the world. So let's just take a moment and speak some truth. Our default setting will always lean towards me and my comfort, toward conformity and complacency, when just what Jesus really needs is for us to be salt and light. The salt that just might sting as it cleanses and the light that just might expose what we do not want to see. It's time to look, because the usual just won't do. Chimamanda Ngozi Archie is a Nigerian. She was raised in a middle-class Nigerian family. Her father was a professor, her mother was an administrator, they were well off enough to have live-in domestic help who would often come from the nearby villages. When she turned eight years old, they got a new houseboy. His name was Bide. The only thing her mother told her about him was that his family was very poor and uh, they would send home rice and yams and the kids' old clothes for the family. And when Chimamanda wouldn't finish her dinner, her mother would say, finish your food. Don't you know five doesn't have enough to eat? Children in China. Every parent does it. So she felt enormously sad and pitiful for Fide's family. Then one Saturday, she's going into the village where Fide lives, and his mother shows her this beautiful woven basket that Fide's brother had made, and, and it startled her. It had never occurred to her that anybody in his family could actually do something or make something. All she had ever heard was poor so that it had become impossible for her to see them as, thing, excuse me, as anything else but poor. Their poverty had become her single story. Years later, she came to the United States to go to college, and she received an American roommate who was shocked by her. She asked, 
Where did you learn to speak English so well? Nigeria is English speaking. She asked if she could listen to Chimamanda's native or tribal music and imagine how disappointed she was when she pulled out a CD by Mariah Carey. Her roommate assumed she didn't know how to use a stove. Now what struck Chimamanda was this. She had felt sorry for her even before meeting Chimamanda. Her default position, her single story, was that as an African, it meant to think of her as somehow less fortunate. The roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe. And in that single story, there was no possibility of Africans being similar to her in any way. No possibility of feeling more complex feelings or the possibility of connection as human equals. And just as she was about to think she had understood the world, she became guilty of her own dangerous single story. Chimamanda decided to go to Mexico, and during that time in her life, the political debates were raging around immigration. She says this, and as often happens in America, immigration became synonymous with Mexicans. There were endless stories of Mexicans as people who were fleecing the healthcare system, sneaking around the border, being arrested at the border, that sort of thing. She was walking around on the first day in Guatemala, or excuse me, Guadalajara, watching the people going to work, rolling out tortillas in the marketplace, smoking, laughing, going to work and having a life, and she remembered feeling her own surprise. And then she was overwhelmed with shame. She had been so immersed in the media coverage of Mexicans that they had become one thing in her mind, abject immigrants. She had bought into the single story of Mexicans and could not have been more ashamed of herself. Our righteousness, my friends, must be salt, cleansing and purifying, light-shedding witness, and it must exceed that of our past. Jesus has come to change our minds about God so that we're to mirror that love of God with each other. Or we might as well just be salt thrown on the roads or light put under a bushel. There was a wonderful quote on Facebook, but that can happen. And it said this, 
Maybe the journey isn't so much about becoming anything. Maybe it's about unbecoming everything that isn't really you. So you can be who you're meant to be in the first place. A child of God, light, salt, set like a shining beacon of a city on a hill. Let's let it shine. Now that we just know for sure that the usual will not do. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you rise and join me in our closing hymn?